On today's podcast, I'm joined by Tom Baker and Alex Dewar, two leaders with BCG, uh, which is a global consulting management consulting firm. Tom, I'll let you kind of kick off and, and just tell a little bit about BCG and what you guys focus on. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having both of us on. We're, we're excited to be part of the part of the podcast. Boston Consulting Group, or BCG, we're a global management consulting firm, uh, over 90 offices around the world. Uh, we focus on a variety of industries, but Alex and myself represent um, our energy practice, uh, really bringing both two, uh, the two core pieces of our energy practice together, one focused uh, on the oil and gas sector, where we, we serve the super majors and a variety of other clients on, on key strategic and organizational topics. And then, uh, you know, important for this conversation today, we also bring our power and renewables uh, perspective where, again, we've worked with electric gas utilities and um, the renewable pure players themselves. You know, as we start to get into the conversation on the future in gas and um, a energy ecosystem, which is increasingly dependent on each other, uh, you know, bringing, bringing these, all these different perspectives is important to, to, to come to a clear picture. Yeah, I agree. And and I guess the way I got connected with you guys is I saw a report that came out. It was called Preparing for an Abundance of U.S. Natural Gas. And you had some interesting findings in there. Could you kind of touch on some of the, the high points from that report and kind of what the gas market has in store for it? Sure. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I, I think at a high level, the report that we recently put out, which is based upon analysis we've been doing for some time now, really looking at energy transitions and the future role of natural gas in the so-called energy transition, both in the U.S. and domestically. And, and what that analysis has showed is, is that there's potential actually for uh, a very different outcome, I think, than many expect for natural gas here in the U.S. So for some context, right now, we're at a really great moment for the natural gas industry in the U.S. Production is growing dramatically. Uh, shale continues to provide tremendous improvements technologically, bringing the cost down and growing the production, extending access in, to, to U.S. natural gas. At the same time, the shift from coal to gas-fired power generation is in full swing, and the U.S. is in the midst of a significant boom in LNG exports and is poised to uh, see a number of approvals for the second wave of U.S. LNG projects coming up. So, you know, the context now is, is, is really good, right? Uh, but what we've noticed by looking at some of the future trends in technology and policy and also public opinion and consumer preferences uh, is that there are some risks to that uh, emerging in the not-so-far-off future. Um, and really what we found is, is really there are sort of three critical drivers that we think are, are going to be central to shaping the role of natural gas in the U.S. energy mix going forward. Um, one is coming up the, the, the sort of the challenge of natural gas competing with ever lower costs for wind and solar power generation as well as for battery uh, backup for peaking capacity. Um, that, that that's something we're already starting to see play out. But uh, as those costs continue to come down in the future, it will become uh, a much more direct competitive challenge. Um, the second is the role of policy, and in particular, the number of states and local governments that are adopting a very aggressive climate change standards, these so-called so 80 by 50 targets or 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, that 
that could potentially push gas out of the mix in consumption uh, prematurely uh, and could be a challenge to demand going forward. And then the third factor that we noticed, which is more of a political uh, or, or sort of policy-oriented one, is ultimately the role that U.S. LNG exports can play. I think we're seeing right now, as I said, a tremendous growth in exports as projects come online and a number of other LNG export projects are, are poised to be approved in the near term. But the assumption that there is a sort of limitless, if you will, uh, valve of, of exports there, that, that no matter how much shale production, gas production grows, that the U.S. will be able to effectively just export that as LNG. I think that that view, um, we think, need, needs to be challenged a little bit. And, and there are some constraints, particularly in the context of an ongoing trade war uh, that we the, U, the U.S. is having with uh, with China, being uh, the fastest growing LNG buyer uh, in the world, and and number two, the number two LNG buyer globally, um, poised probably to overtake Japan in the coming years. So, given all of those trends, those those three particular trends that we saw shaping the future, uh, we've come to a, a bit of a different view uh, on the role of natural gas, and and our modeling estimates that U.S. gas consumption could be about 20% less in 2040 than the typical modeling suggests by the U.S. Energy Information Administration. And uh, we can get into the implications of it, but, but there's, there are some pretty big implications across the power sector and the entire energy sector in the U.S., uh, if, if that, in fact, is what, what shapes up over the coming decades. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've heard other people talk about how, you know, if China and, and the U.S. have this trade uh, disagreement and, and can't work things out, they're still, China is going to get gas from somewhere. So they're still going to be taking gas from the market and something has to replace that. So even if China doesn't buy gas from the U.S., they could be buying it from Australia or other countries and what displacing where that Australian gas would otherwise go and the U.S. could fill the gap. Does that uh, play into your thinking at all? Yeah, that's a great point. And that's that's very true. Uh, and what we've seen in the short term since the Chinese 10% tariff on U.S. LNG was announced last year is that the market has proved to be very resilient to that. While U.S. supply of LNG to China dried up, given that tariff, the U.S. cargoes have found other markets, and China has supplied from other markets, uh, as you say, more from Australia, uh, around the, the Pacific Basin as well. So the market's working in the near term. I think the, the particular challenge we see for this, though, is looking forward and the ability for the next generation of U.S. LNG export projects to, be, to reach final investment decision. And What's really critical about U.S. LNG is, as opposed to LNG that's been developed elsewhere in the world, you have independent projects here, independent developers and, um, uh, developing the projects here in the U.S. And to reach final investment decision, many of them rely on a very high percentage of debt finance. And to then go to the lenders that they have and secure that debt they have an obligation to show that there are firm commitments for a certain percentage of that capacity so that effectively there will be buyers, that they are a low-risk investment 
um, that they'll be able to to be able to place their their LNG product when they come online. And and so that's why this trade conflict is frankly couldn't come at a worse time for the U.S. LNG industry because you have a very large number of projects, around 20 projects, uh, if you stack them all up right now, trying to reach final investment decision in the next few years. And so at the same time, they're trying to find buyers to get firm commitments for that capacity, then go and secure the debt to be able to proceed with, with developing those projects. And it just so happens that China is by far the most rapidly growing consumer of LNG right now. And, and we've already seen that play out where, whereby U.S. projects are not able to get those contracts that they might have otherwise had with Chinese buyers because of the tariff and the broader uncertainty around the trade environment going forward. So it's, it's a bit of a nuanced argument, but we, we think ultimately that this uh, trade conflict, if it goes on, uh, and, and it's a big question this week, uh, you know, as we speak, the, the trade talks are underway in Washington. Um, but, but if it continues, then I think it could have some big implications on which projects are able to actually proceed to then provide that export capacity by the mid to late 2020s. Now, you also mentioned, you know, about how the power industry in the U.S. is changing and, uh, you know, the typical gas peaker plant is finding competition from battery plus solar. Uh, I know in Hawaii there's a project and and I've heard, uh, you know, the the costs have come down so dramatically that it's really competitive to install a PV system with a battery storage system and use that for peaking. Uh, Maybe Tom can chime in here, but... How do you see the U.S. power industry affecting this and and shifting from maybe a gas beaker plant to a more um, renewable-backed uh, resource? What do you see there? Yeah, it's a great question, Aaron. And Well, I, I think you teed it up nicely and, and it's something that we're certainly seeing in the market, which is you know, first taking a step back, um, we are, you know, over the last couple of years have fundamentally seen a a change in the total uh, costs associated with um, solar, wind, and increasingly now battery storage. And so, you know, there are really two, at a high level, I like to call renewables gas uh, frenemies, because in many respects, as we move to a world with increasing renewable penetration, uh, the flexibility provided with gas peakers and, and even the ramping capabilities of a gas CCGT is something that's going to be required as we start to see penetrations of renewables high enough where, you know, at the end of the day, we may see renewables come in at um, PPA signed at the $20, $25 a megawatt hour, which can, which will compete generally with the CCGT in the U.S., but uh, it is intermittent power. And especially at higher penetrations, gas will be required to to help balance some of um, some of the the intermittency and also importantly the seasonal differences that you see with the output of renewables from from the winter say to to the summer. That said, we as as you alluded to, Aaron, we are increasingly seeing um, the potential for renewables when paired with battery storage or, or battery storage as a standalone solution compete and provide the flexibility that's needed to integrate more renewables. And, you know, this has largely been driven by the decreases we've seen in lithium battery pricing. 
And, um, you know, depending on the exact setup of the structure and, and how and, and the magnitude of the PV plus the storage, you know, we see today, especially in states like California, where there's a strong solar resource and, and Hawaii is another great example, also because of high wholesale prices, where absolutely a, a standalone storage system or a solar plus storage system can, can compete with a new gas peaker. Uh, so when, if you were to compare the LCOE or the economics of, of building a battery storage versus a, a gas peaker. And, you know, we, depending on exactly the market dynamics, we may even see in the not too distant future, say the next five years, if continued cost declines in battery storage expect as, as we, as we, uh, as we've seen historically, that, um, we may even get to a situation where a new build battery storage quote, peaking plant would compete economically with an existing an existing gas peaker, um, where now you're, you've already got the sunk cost, but the, even just the operational cost. So, so, you know, the economics are absolutely starting to, starting to drive towards uh, battery storage paired or not paired with renewables competing with, competing with gas peakers. I think we'll still have challenges with some of the seasonal aspects. So a lot of this um, lithium, uh, lithium batteries are great for solving and shifting electricity from, say, the middle of the day to the, the peak later on at night. Um, we still don't have long-term storage solutions for some of the broader seasonal impacts that occur. Uh, but nonetheless, when you combine some of the economics, and if it's, we can also start to dive into some of the policy where both Hawaii and California have pushed um, the policy away from gas speakers to to lithium batteries, you know, I think both will absolutely have a material impact on on gas demand in the power sector. I guess another part of the policy uh, aspects is talking about trying to reduce carbon footprints and, and things like that. Do you think more states are going to adopt similar standards such as California and Hawaii? I know Massachusetts is also very supportive of um, you know, solar and, and wind, even though it's not really a, a great area for solar power, they're really promoting that sort of thing. Minnesota is another one that seems to have a, a desire to get more solar into their system. Do you think the entire country will eventually get there and, and be promoting all of these renewable resources? I think it's hard to say, you know, whether we'll include every state in the, in the, in the U.S. You know, of course, we've got an incredibly diverse set of politics and legislators and, and policy stances to this topic. I, I do think it's fair to say that we're absolutely seeing a significant trend towards um, increasing RPS standards and um, mandating certain percentages of renewables and or mandating certain percentages of, quote, uh, carbon-free energy. So in, uh, RPS standards typically don't include things like uh, nuclear and hydro. I think we're going to start to see a trend and where states will increasingly look towards going closer to 100% of carbon-free, where nuclear and, and hydro can be included. And and so, yeah, long story short, yes, I think I think we're going to continue to see one-on-ship on, on RPS and other clean energy standards. I think to, there, of course, will be areas of the country or states that um, won't be nearly as aggressive. But, um, you know, this is where I, I fall back to the economics argument, which is uh, regardless of um, the policy push, 
you know, we're going to see, we're going to see renewables plus storage be cost competitive to CCGT and gas peaking, um, you know, in, in parts of the country where, where the renewable resource is strong. And, and even in areas, um, you know, there are going to be opportunities for just lithium ion by itself, you know, charged with a different type of source of energy, but, you know, leveraging existing techno- existing generation to charge and avoid the need for a new gas peaker to meet, um, you know, to meet peak demand at, at the later, later on in the day. And, and the economics for that depend less on the, you know, the fundamental renewable resource. So, you know, even, even more hard-nosed states in the Midwest, et cetera, that may not have a strong renewable resource, uh, we will increasingly, I think, see uh, battery storage economically competitive with gas peakers in, in those markets going forward. Hmm. The other element here, too, is is thinking about the role of gas in buildings and industrial consumption. And what we're seeing happen is part of these 80 by 50 standards that are being adopted, part of that applies to the in-consumption of gas outside of power generation. So in buildings, residential, commercial, and in industrial applications. And a logical consequence of those targets is a much diminished role of natural gas in in heating applications. Uh, And so while we're still early days in the implementation of some of these policies, you're starting to see some states and local governments adopt measures to either limit natural gas connections to homes, as as is starting to happen now in California for new-build homes, uh, or at least to incentivize a switch from natural gas to electric sources in terms of air source heat pumps uh, or electric water heaters or induction uh, cooking, for example, and and so we think this is kind of momentum that's that's building around these policies, and it'll uh, I think will will be particularly salient in the next five to ten years as policymakers, uh, oftentimes at a very local level, you know, when it comes to to city councils uh, and zoning boards and things like that, uh, adopt measures to implement these overarching climate targets. That there will be a greater push towards electrification of ends energy consumption. And that has some pretty big implications as well for, for natural gas demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I noticed in the report now you, you mentioned that the impact of spot price uh, reductions will impact different companies, different ways and different players, different ways. And one of the things that was mentioned is that utility companies face some of the toughest challenges and presumably that's the gas utilities. But I, I'd like to get your input on on how they'll uh, be affected and, and what you see changing going forward yeah Aaron and I, you know Alex maybe I'll start and feel, you should obviously feel free to jump in but you know bringing up the the gas utility point I think is um, is one great place to start and you know, this is going back to your earlier question around the politics and policy behind this well you know we're obviously going to see this play out in different ways but in 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 California, for example, there are there are several bills um, that currently are in, are in the state legislature that are looking at the role of natural gas to use in buildings and and even industry going forward. And you know that their view has taken both a a greenhouse gas emissions view and the fact that electrification could replace that, but there's also been um 
a significant safety uh, concern and issue going forward on this topic. You know, in in California and the Northeast, and quite frankly around the world, we we see. You know, we, we see some issues with gas distribution and explosions and other safety instances where, you know, ultimately they, they make the headlines and, and you know, all, all told the, the industry works incredibly safely. But but none the, nonetheless, the single incident that makes the headlines and results in in, 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 in fatalities is one that's that's ought to and is taken very seriously by by regulators. And so I, I think we're going to continue to see a push towards electrification because of both the greenhouse gas and safety issue. And as a, as a gas utility that serves end consumers, you know, I think you, you do have to, this is a significant, especially if you're in a market like California or say New York, uh, you're on the two coasts, this is a significant risk to your, to your business going forward in terms of thinking about the long-term strategy. And I think, you know, we've already seen situations where player gas utilities in the U.S. have started to make moves into uh, renewable gas or have actually started to support their own disintermediation, recognizing that there, there is this core fundamental risk to their business. Alex, it might be helpful. This is something that our, our, our European colleagues have seen play out um, even more aggressively, and, and those gas utilities have, have been forced to take even more aggressive moves I don't know, Alex, if it's helpful to, uh, I know you have some experience that space might be helpful to, to reference a couple of those examples. Exactly. In some ways, I think it's helpful to look to Europe as an example of what could come in the U.S. down the line, because Europe is, I would say, a bit ahead of, of the U.S. on implementing climate policies uh, and the discourse around this, I think, is is kind of more robust, right? I, I think there's a, in the U.S. you see certain regions uh, taking the lead on this, whereas in, in Europe it's really across the board, right, being set from the top down by the, the EU. But what we see from looking to Europe as an example is that there already are significant drives to start to electrify in consumption. So setting aside everything happening on the generation mix and renewables, uh, there are measures to really push for um, building electrification and, and to minimize the role of gas. And, and so what you've seen, though, is, is utilities starting to respond. And they have been, I think, much more forceful in articulating the role that gas can play as a lever of de- for decarbonization of a variety uh, of, of different sectors, and in particular in buildings and, and industrial applications. And so you see utilities much more vocally, I think, supporting the role of biomethane, uh, so renewable gas that that can play, uh, supporting the role of hydrogen, both uh, from a kind of how we typically think of hydrogen, right, in terms of use in transport or industrial sectors. Um, There are other applications for how hydrogen can be integrated into gas grids. And then also third on carbon capture utilization and storage and what role that can play in terms of particularly industrial applications of capturing the emissions from from gas at the point of of combustion and then storing that. But we, we don't I think, see quite as much uh, engagement in the U.S. amongst utilities, at least, around those technological pathways and 
funding them to develop them to be viable there in the future, but also advocating to policymakers and to the public that these are really viable roles for ensuring that gas has a role as a transition fuel, both uh, in, in the near term and then also as an in-state, right? That ultimately you can decarbonize natural gas. Um, because if those arguments aren't made and, and, and won, right, both from a policy perspective as well as the technology, then I, I think there is significant risk of, of gas ultimately being phased out in, in a push to, to decarbonize. One other thing that I, I was noticing from the report, you mentioned that companies have to prepare for disruption. And in, in, in one statement, it said only about one in three companies is able to navigate major shifts in their industry. What can a company do to make sure they are one of those three that is able to navigate these changing waters? And, and what would you recommend to leaders of those companies to make sure that they remain viable in the future? Yeah, a couple couple thoughts on my end, and Alex, you absolutely should should throw in here your thoughts as well. Um, you know, I think at a at a high level, and th- this is a lot of the work that BCG that we do with our our clients on the daily basis, is really thinking about um, what's needed to transform, and some of the major shifts that we're expecting in the industry or could impact certain players that are exposed to this. I think one of the very first steps is to take a be- take a step back and recognize that this requires a fundamentally different way of working, and and you know requires uh, a significant external a significant effort internally to to trans potentially transform and uh, change the way that you um, that you wait work the way you work, and we always recommend doing this from a position of strength. I think we often see. In the transformations that we do in the energy sector, we we see there's somewhere between a six to eight times more uh, chance of success if you do it from a position of strength. And all and all, you know, all too often, players move too far down uh, a certain pathway, and then recognize when it's too late that they're potentially you know significantly exposed to the fact that decarbonation is is destroying some of their gas demand, for example. And, you know, when, when you're already starting to feel the impacts of that, um, it's too late. And so, you know, our, our recommendation would be to, to start early, to think early, to, um, you know, leverage scenarios and other, other tools to really expand, expand your, your thinking and, and, and try to understand what are, um, what's, what are the possible scenarios or pathways that could lead to some some significant value destruction and then you know think about ways to explicitly mitigate those risks. Alex, have you got anything to add on that? Yeah, well well said Tom. <laughs> uh, I, I think the only thing to add there is that really thinking about this balance between gas and the electric utility side of the business as well is going to be very important going forward and that there are a lot of opportunities actually to uh, enable that transition, right? Um, and, and particularly, uh, I think utilities can help regulators understand what are the lowest cost means of decarbonizing energy consumption and what are the higher cost, higher risk, higher technologically, you know, more technologically challenged levers that they can pull. 
and so I think engaging with the public and engaging with regulators is is another key step there. And then in turn, feeding that back into portfolio decisions around, you know, how they can work with regulators, work with the public to achieve the outcomes uh, that they want. Um, I, I think that having that kind of constructive engagement as opposed to a reactive one really minimizes the risk and I think can enable utilities to really be front and center as part of the solution here. And, and that's really going to be critical because, you know, it's a big grand, you know, experiment that the public and policymakers are, are launching on here with, you know, energy transitions for the purpose of decarbonization. And, and I think it's critical that utilities play a role in advising and, and helping to shape that. Um, so I think that, that kind of constructive engagement while at the same time managing their portfolio to seize opportunities and mitigate risks is, is going to be critical. And it may require this disintermediation, right? It may require you actively looking for actual growth opportunities that may at the end of the day disrupt your, your ultimate sales or, or push towards gas. And, and I do draw, I think we're seeing this, um, these lessons also playing out in the power side of the energy sector where distributed energy resources, energy efficiency, and uh, other DER technologies are, are reducing the electric load. And um, I think we saw early on, at least in the U.S., a, a stance, a strategic stance that at least some utilities took, which was much more in the reactive camp and trying to avoid disintermediating their electric sales. But I think over time, the, the industry in general has taken now more of a, a, a more proactive stance to say, well, we understand that some of these technologies may be disrupting uh, our sales, but it's not, if we're proactive, it's an opportunity for us to disintermediate ourselves. And uh, there is value to be created on the power side through um, energy efficiency and participating in rooftop solar and other DERs. And so I do think some of those some of those lessons learned and parallels absolutely apply for gas utilities and other players in the gas market who may hesitate to look for ways to disintermediate themselves, but could ultimately actually create value and are are well positioned to help to do that. All right, good point. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that that you guys would like to bring up before we close this out? Yeah, and I think there's one other big theme here coming out of the work that we've done, which is given the trends on supply of effectively ever reducing costs of shale production uh, driven by the technological innovation that's happening there, combined with the demand side elements that we've been talking about, right, of constraints, uh, limits to the, the, the potential demand growth, I, I think that really represents a significant uh, continued downward pressure on natural gas prices. And, you know, we're not in the business of, of taking a call exactly on what, what that price is going to be. We look at supply-demand fundamentals and, and, and really talk about the trends, what will drive that, and so forth. But we see a lot of, of factors stacking up here to indicate that, you know, U.S. natural gas will remain abundant, and given the supply-demand dynamics, will be consistently on a sustained basis cheaper, right? That's not to say there won't be market fluctuations now and again. Certainly, you know, you see the cycle and, and ultimately, you know, if the price is too low, you won't get the reinvestment on the supply side that you need. But I, I think that's an important point around the context here because 
it will create new opportunities for natural gas consumption that we can't even conceive of necessarily now. You know, already there is significant investment in U.S. petrochemical plants. I think as costs are coming down, you're starting to see greater uh, potential investment in, in other sectors like manufacturing that use natural gas as uh, a, a fuel source. But the, the real kind of benefit to this, right, is, is to U.S. competitiveness globally. And I think that's another important element here uh, is that the shale revolution that kind of continues uh, and we, we see it, you know, really continuing for some time going forward, combined with these other elements, um, presents tremendous opportunities for the U.S. Uh, as, as well. All right. Thanks. Tom, did you have anything else to add? In closing, there's a lot of, uh, both for the U.S. and the gas market in general, um, a lot of positive aspects around where we see the next 5 to 10, 15, even 15 years. But we, we, we are f- flying maybe not a red flag, but, a, but at least a yellow flag that um, we, we think isn't getting flagged when, it, when we think about some of the longer-term fundamentals of the, of the market. All right. Well, thank you. And I guess if anyone listening to the podcast wants to get a hold of you, they can look you up online. Is, is your website bcg.com or is there some other way to get a hold of you? Folks are very happy to um, directly email either the two of us. Our, our emails are quite simple. Mine is baker.thomas at bcg.com. Yep. And I'm doer, so d-e-w-a-r.alex at bcg.com. And we're always happy to engage with folks on this. I think it's, uh, you know, an, an area where the industry needs to debate and exchange views, I think, more more openly on this. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we go to conferences and you see the same charts about, you know, what's what's the future hold. And, and I think we're in a period of really rapid change and increased uncertainty. And that, that was really our, our core purpose uh, for putting out this paper is to talk about the different ways the world can evolve. And it's important, I think, for the industry overall to engage on that. So please reach out and, and uh, look forward to hearing, hearing uh, the views of folks out there. All right. Thank you both for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, I really appreciate the information that you shared with us.